Right? So what is our culture like? What is our culture like when it comes to the issue of God? What is it like? I did a little research thinking about our culture and God, and I, I did a Google search. Maybe that's not the best way to figure things out. But I came up with some headlines yesterday I found on a Google search, and here's some of them as they pertain to God. There's one headline on the BBC. Professor Stephen Hawking says, No God created the universe. One. This News 24 says, Finally, proof that there is no God. NPR said, simply, there is no God. Huffington Post says, there is no God, and you know it. And then I thought this one was kind of comical. Vanity Fair says, it's Donald Trump proof that there is no God. <laughs> so clearly there's something going on in our culture when it comes to God, and people saying, there is no God. Our world makes these kind of statements all the time. Here's some statements that maybe are things you've heard people share with you. Or maybe you've said yourself, I don't know. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. It's relative. Everything we see was created by chance, not God. You've probably heard that before. What makes you think your religion is better than others? Life is really about me and what I want. You've probably heard these statements. You can probably think in your mind right now if you close your eyes, you go, wow, I've had interactions even this past week or this past month with people who've expressed these very ideas, maybe not these same words, but these same ideas. That's the culture we're living in. And all, the he all of these, these headlines and these statements would, would make it seem like, oh, this is fact, this is fact, this is fact. What this really is is philosophy. It's really about the way people are choosing to think about the world. It's philosophy. Fortunately, the Bible, the Scripture, gives us answers to how we can deal with these philosophies. So, fortunately for us, it's right here in Romans, in, in five verses in chapter 1, so we're going to take a look at what it has to say. You can follow along in your Bible. If you've got it, I'll put it on the screen as well. I'll just read it for you. Starting in verse 18 in chapter 1. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Failing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals creeping things. And so here Paul launches into what's going on in the culture, but we have to remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago when he precedes this, and Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
righteous shall live by faith. And what he is saying, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is that God has given us a way to be right with him and a way to live. He's given us a path of salvation and a path of sanctification. And in that context, against that backdrop of the gospel, Paul goes into this passage and immediately says, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he says, there are unrighteous. There are those who are unrighteous and ungodly. And in that context, those statements I put up there, we're going to tackle each one of those because I think Paul addresses them right here in this passage. So we'll go through four statements this morning, one at a time, that we might hear in our culture. The first one, morality is relative. Morality is relative. Morals of right and wrong, everyone gets to decide what's right and wrong. Personally. It's up to them. They get to figure it out. They get to figure it out. I'm sure you've heard this. I think I hear this. We all hear this. We go into schools. I think one example of how this plays out is we've seen in our culture the removal of the Ten Commandments from public places, from schools and other places. Now, you could argue and say, well, that's because that's about religion and the separation of church and state and the kid. Well, fine. But realistically, the Ten Commandments, whether you believe in God or not, is really a codification of morals. And it's morals we all could choose to live by, but they're saying, ah! We don't want all moral standards to apply to everyone. We don't want them to apply to everyone, so we'll take the Ten Commandments away. And that's just one example. I'm sure you've all heard these things in places where you work, in places where you study, in places where you live, and in the news, and so forth. What does Paul say about it? Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul here is disputing the idea that morality is just whatever I want it to be. He's saying, no, there's something more here. How is he doing that? He talks about unrighteousness. Well, unrighteousness implies a righteousness. The existence of unrighteousness presupposes righteousness. I think it would not be amiss to say that 100% of us heard about the school shooting this last week or any other school shooting that we've heard or any other sort of tragedy in the public place and said, oh, yeah, that's good. None of us said that. 100% said, that is not good. That is unrighteous. Well, the recognition that it is bad implies that there is a good alternative, doesn't it? Paul says, there is unrighteousness, therefore there is righteousness. We all know that's true. The second thing he does is he talks about the truth. The truth doesn't exist. The truth doesn't exist if morality is relative. Right? I learned that in like 10th grade math and we were going through logic. Make that statement. All truth is relative. All truth is relative. Well, is that statement true? If it's true, then wait. It's not a relative statement. See how it circles? It doesn't work. The truth exists. Morality is not relative. That's what Paul is saying. Then Paul talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God without fixed morality is just an arbitrary thing. God's just sort of mad about something. If morality was relative, it'd be just like, well, I'm just angry. And then I'm going to be angry about something different because it would all just be sort of revolving and unsettled. 
And Paul concludes, he says, those who say this are suppressing the truth. And he tells us why. He says they're suppressing the truth because of unrighteousness. Because of their sin. And what that means is that people want moral relativism because it allows them to hide from their sin. It allows them to hide from their sin. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not condemning anyone for relativism. You're trying like, oh, that's not fair. That's not kind. You're being mean. You're being condemning. And I go, no, I'm not. Because Romans 3.23 tells us what? All have sinned. And that includes me. So I'm not able to sit in some moral place and say, well, I'm better than you and you're morally well. No. See, as a sinner, I too, I don't want to face judgment for my actions and my sins. I want to hide as well. I want to hide. My hope? Oh man, I wish there wasn't judgment. I wish there wasn't justice. I wish there wasn't a judge. But my desire for that does not change whether there is justice or judgment. If there was no judge, then I would never have to be accountable. But if there is a judge, then I am accountable. So moral relativism is just simply trying to wish away justice. When you say morality is relative, you're just going, oh man, I just hope there's not justice. And Paul's telling us to be clued in. That when we encounter this position in our culture, when we encounter the moral relative position, we should recognize that it is almost assuredly an attempt to suppress the truth in order to hide personal sin. And so this leads us into the second statement we hear in our culture, which is this. The universe was not created. And you hear this in all different sorts of ways. The main example of this would be the theory of evolution, that all things have evolved by chance from nothing. This is a theory that has grown really in a hundred years. I put this picture up here. I'm sure if you know who this is, Tim, Tim Pryne knows who this is, the history of Western civilization. The Scopes Trial, 1925 in Tennessee, a man was on trial for teaching evolution in school because it was against the law and he was convicted. And here we are, less than 100 years later, and it's everywhere. The cover of Time Magazine and every magazine, all over the schools and media and music and movies and literature, they all treat evolutionary theory as default fact. And so I'm sure that you hear this, we're here by chance. The universe is not created. You hear this, I'm sure, frequently. What does Paul say about it? What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul disputes the concept that the universe was not created by God. First, he says, God has shown it to them. God has shown it. If you look, it's not hard to see God. And I don't say that in a condescending way. I understand that there's lots of challenges and issues, and people come to different conclusions, and I get it. I've got two quotes here I'll put on the screen. The first one, noted atheist Bertrand Russell, when he was asked, what would you say if you die and you have to stand before this God who you say doesn't exist, what would you say to him? And he said, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. 
On the other hand, Norm Geisler, a Christian apologist, said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. But he's also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. And so there's different views on where this lands. That Paul says, God has shown it to us. Paul said, there is evidence for this. But where is there evidence? Where is there evidence? Well, Paul tells us in things that have been made. Things that have been made. In the tangible stuff. Not just great thoughts or ideas, right? I'm not just talking about all these concepts and ideas. Because no, it's right here in front of us. Intangible stuff that you can see and touch in your own selves. A couple pictures here. We could go hours about the things God has created. And that picture there on the left of a tree. They are considered a tree. Just a tree. Just a simple tree. There's probably have some in your yard and around your neighborhood and there's thousands, I don't know, millions, billions of trees, I don't know, all over the world to look at them. Trees have photosynthesis, this crazy process I don't even understand where they absorb sunlight and they take in carbon dioxide, they produce oxygen, and it's this amazing chemical process that happens. They have a root system that not only holds the tree in place, but it draws in water and nutrients through the soil, and it spreads out just perfectly. If you think about trees in winter, and if you and I had to stand out in the cold and the wind and the snowstorms, we'd die. The trees just hang out, like we're good, all winter long. Think about trees, they lose their leaves, like I can't take it anymore, they lose their leaves. And in the spring, they're like, oh, I'll just grow some new ones. Right, it's amazing. They do this exactly like the trees of a person, but it has no brain. It has no heart. It has no spirit. And it still does this. It's amazing. But it all comes from a tiny little seed. Then there's the human body. You know, there's nothing closer to us. We can shut ourselves in a room and not ever see the trees, but we can't get away from our own bodies, can we? Have you ever thought about the complex systems that are working together? Your muscles, your circulation of blood, and like what goes through your body and all this stuff, and everything sort of fits together. Your nerves are like a complicated electrical system. It's amazing. Amazing. You're breathing. You ever think about that? Don't think too hard about it. It's kind of creepy. Your heart beats, and you don't think about it. It just beats, even when you're asleep. Your lungs breathe. You don't think about it. You could, you could stop your lungs from breathing, but you probably can't really just, I'm going to will my heart to stop beating. Those things just go, even while you're asleep. If they don't, we're in trouble. It's amazing. It's amazing. See, I'm no scientist. I am no doctor. I don't study these things. I'm an architect. I think about buildings. I don't think about these, but I look out at the world and I go, wow, it's God. It's God. God made it. I agree with Paul. It is plain to me everywhere I look. I hope it is for you too. What Paul says is interesting. He says it's obvious that the universe is created and therefore... We have no excuse. You know, I really think this is why 
we look at the, the movement of scientism and worshiping what scientists say and the movements and theories of evolution, I think Satan is behind it because if he can trick us, if he can trick us to think the world wasn't created, it's us one step further from God and that's his goal. And really this view, this view just follows on those heels of moral relativism. I think people are just looking for excuses, just running from the accountability of a creator God. And yet, in the midst of that, it gets us to the third thing we hear people say, which is that all paths lead to God, which I find to be ironic, that you want to dismiss the creator, and you want to dismiss morality, but then you go, oh yeah, he still exists, and he's worth getting to. You understand how that works, right? If God didn't create the universe, who did? If God didn't establish morality, who did? it's not God, shouldn't we be trying to get to whoever did create it and whoever does establish morality? I want to get to the ruler of the universe. And so in the culture, we hear this idea, don't we, that, oh, all religions are equal. And you go into places and they have like, these like, flags and like, they try to cover this little symbol of every like religion they could possibly think of, right? And there's this illustration that you'll hear. I think it came out of India. I threw a picture here up on the screen. It's this the story that's told about the elephant and the blind man. And so you've got six blind men, and they walk up to this elephant. And they don't really know who it is, and each one touches a different part of the elephant. So the first blind man touches the side of the elephant, and he's like, oh, it's very strong. This must be a wall. And the second one grabs the trunk. See him grabbing the trunk there? He's like, oh, this is great. This is like a snake. Third one touches the tusk. He's like, well, this is really cool. It's like a spear. Fourth one says, wow, I'm grabbing the leg. This is, like a, this is like a tree. And the fifth one is there. He gets the ear, and he's like, wow, this is kind of like a big fan. There's something going on here. And then the last guy grabs the tail, and he goes, wow, what a sweet rope. Right? And so then they start to argue about what this thing is that they're touching. And they're all saying, it's this, and it's that, and the other. But then there's a king sitting nearby, and the king calls out, and he's like, hey guys, it's an elephant. And they're like, oh. And so in the story, they're like moved to be more understanding of each other, and more compassionate towards each other in their blindness. And this illustration is applied to religion, and applied to God, and says, see, many ways, many different paths, many different religions reveal different parts of God. And they're all just getting us to God. But what does Paul say about this in Romans? He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul describes this kind of thinking that develops that illustration in two ways. First, he says, they did not honor God. What does it mean to you to be dishonored? Think about that as a parent or as colleague or whatever, it typically means lots of things, but one of those things is you speak truth, you speak life, you speak grace, and it's ignored, rejected, and opposed. That's dishonoring, isn't it? And so you, you do not honor God when you reject what God says. And so that elephant illustration is a prime example, in my opinion, of not Honoring God, even though it sounds like this cool illustration, I'll explain what I mean. The primary way this does not honor God 
is it discounts whether God Himself would have anything to say to us about who He is. See, realistically, in that illustration, there was God, the elephant, the elephant would talk and say, hey, no, guys, I'm an elephant. And it's like, you figure out what I am. It's not there. It's futile. Instead of the elephant talking, it's who? The king. Or me, right? I'm the one. And I see, hey, guys, it's the elephant. What that's really saying is, I know about God better than God knows about God. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's what it's saying. Paul also says it's futile. It's, which basically just means pointless or useless. How is this thinking pointless or useless? How is the concept that all paths lead to God pointless and useless? Well, let me explain. So we go back to this picture, right? And you've got six blind men. Six blind men. Why is it six? Was that just because it's convenient for this illustration? Maybe. Well, we have to answer that question when it comes to the illustration. Are we saying that there are six paths to God? Are we saying that there's an infinite number of paths to God? If it's not six, is it seven? If it's not seven, if it's eight, is it finite? If it's finite, that means there's some ways that don't get you to God. But if it's infinite, then it means there's any way to God. And so if that's true, that means me not attempting to get to God is a legitimate way to get to God. Doesn't make sense. It's pointless. Because then, if me not getting to God is a way to get to God, then I might as well just not get to God. So trying to get to God is a waste of my time. Because I can just get to God by not even trying to get to God. Who's on first? <laughs> goes around and around. And then I'm also bothered, I think, so that that's pointless. I think there's something else. There's this issue of the king, the guy who's sitting separate. It implies that there is somebody who's outside of the situation who can tell you, hey, all paths lead to God. Which means that there actually is one view that's supreme, which is the view that all paths lead to God. So this is a contradiction. You're saying all paths lead to God, but this is actually the best view. That doesn't make any sense. That means this view, this illustration is useless. It's useless. It's futile. It's pointless and useless. We are no closer to finding the way to God in our own philosophy. It comes to my mind as I think of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Right? And he's, he's a little worried because things are going bad in Middle Earth. So he heads off to his mentor, Saruman the White, this other wizard. And he goes up into the tower and he's talking to him, and Saruman starts talking funny. Right? Saruman's like, Yeah, I think we've got to sort of side with the bad guys here, and they're going to save us. And Gandalf says this When did Saruman the Wise abandon reason for madness? So I think this view is we've abandoned reason for madness. When we reject the power of God, we reject His moral standards, we inevitably fill the vacuum of our own futile thoughts. And into that vacuum, and into that void, usually plunges this. Blank is the most important 
failure. There is an emptiness. We take God away. Something must fill the void. And the examples of this are numerous. Maybe it's the earth. Conserving the earth. Conservation. Wildlife. So on and so forth. Maybe it's pets. Love my pets. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's just the children. And so on. In some ways in our culture, it seems like it goes week to week or month to month. That blank could be gun ownership or gun control or it could be sexual choices or it could be racial profiles or whatever. It depends. And so many of those things, when you have them in the context of God's morality and God's creation, are bad. When they become the central thing, when they become elevated to be in the place of God, it's not good. Paul tells us that he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, making something more important than God is idolatry. That's what it is. The Bible tells us you're worshiping an idol. To devote my life to blank is to allow that thing to take the place of God in my life. And that means I'm being idolatrous. In ancient times, there were temples, right? And they actually worshipped seasons, and they worshipped animals, and it was kind of very obvious. And today, maybe it's not so blatant, but we still have the worship of idols, don't we? We take things and we replace God with these things. There's a vacuum that has to be filled. Do you remember the old Bob Dylan song? You've got to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. That's what he said, and that's the truth. That's what Paul's saying. When we reject God's glory, our lives become devoted to the worship of other things. So that takes us through the four statements I think we hear from our culture a lot. And if you're like me, you start to ask the question, why? Why is the culture upside down? Paul tells us there's a pattern going on here. It was going on then and it's going on today. We reject the truth, we reject the evidence, then we reject God, then we embrace idols. And we see this in our culture broadly and we see it in people's lives around us. But we've got to be very clear, this is not an us versus them issue. Don't hear that. If you take anything away this morning, please hear this. This is not a saying, we've got it and they know and why don't they get it? This is not an us versus them issue. In two weeks, we're going to get to chapter two. And Paul says this. You practice the very same things. Did you catch that? You too. Me too. Me too. The culture is upside down because I am upside down. So it's not an us versus them. And into this comes the gospel, the message of the good news. And the message of the good news is not, hey, I do unrighteousness and they do unrighteousness. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, we all do unrighteousness gives us the free gift of salvation. 
have something. I'm not doing something. I have something that others don't. I want to share it with them. I want to share it with them. And so when we take that gospel perspective to these things, instead of an us-them, and a, maybe I just shout louder and they'll do, that's not what it's about. You start to go, oh, the world is upside down because my heart is broken and I'm sinful. And so we start to hear these things when someone says, Morality is relative. Don't say that. You'll hear that. When somebody says that, our reaction should not be anger. We should be compassionate because they're, they're probably struggling with guilt and shame. And then we need to turn around and talk to ourselves and ask ourselves the question, do I believe and live like God's moral standards are true? Or am I trying to hide from my sin? It can be very convicting. And somebody says the universe was not created. We shouldn't be angry. We should be compassionate. People are probably running from accountability. Probably running from accountability. I need to turn around and ask myself, do I believe that God created the universe like he said or not? Am I minimizing God as a means to minimize my accountability to him? I've got to make this personal. Somebody says all paths lead to God. Again, I shouldn't be angry or frustrated. I should be compassionate because they're caught in futile, useless, pointless thinking. And I should look at myself and say, do I believe that there's really a God? Or am I living like salvation and hope is found somewhere besides Jesus Christ? And when somebody says that something else is the most important thing again. I know by now we should be compassionate because a person is filling the void left by the absence of worshiping God. I need to ask myself, do I believe that God alone is worthy of worship or do I find myself worshiping created things instead of the Creator? That's our reaction. That's what I think Paul is pointing us to in this passage. He's saying philosophy, it's upside down, but it's upside down because we're all upside down. It's only by the grace of God and Jesus Christ that we can walk into that. So my encouragement to you today is that you would pray, think through these questions and pray and ask God and say, God, would you help me identify what's upside down in my life? What's upside down in my life? God, please help me. Help me to be compassionate towards others. Pray and I'll close. Dad, I thank you for this book of Romans that you provided it for us and Paul just spoke so succinctly and so directly and in five verses he summed up the philosophy of our culture. I'm sure it was the philosophy of his culture. So God, we want to walk into that culture with our eyes open. And we want to understand it's not about just working hard and being righteous. You say that there is none righteous, not one. None of us are righteous on our own. We all fall into that category of unrighteous. Only Christ is righteous. So Lord, we thank you for that good news. We thank you for the message of hope. God, we remember it this
this morning as we pray. Lord, we remember that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and in doing that, after living a perfect life, He took the penalty that was due to us, that justice that we are trying to run from. He took that penalty and paid it for us. And offers it to us as a free gift that we just have to receive, Lord, like we said. We have something. It's not that we do something different. We have something different. But we want to share that message and offer it to others. So it helps us to be thinking right in an upside-down culture.